Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to talk about flattery and compliments. We're going to watch a man be flattered. The Bible says that there is life and death in the power of the tongue. Whenever I hear that used, it's usually that I can confess a car into existence. And, and, uh, you know, whether or not you can, I I don't know. But I'm telling you what it does mean. It means that when I speak to somebody negatively, I can bring death. I can break hearts. I can destroy people with my words to their face or behind their back. And when I speak positively and I speak encouragement and I speak the the kindness of God and what the Lord is showing me, I can bring life to people. I can encourage them, strengthen them. I can give them, they can rise up and go on because I've spoken to them things that give them hope. Do you understand? There is life and death in the power of the tongue. Say that with me. There is life. Your tongue. My tongue. How this thing gets used. What I say to people matters enormously to God. He talks about it a great deal. Father, would you open the word to us? Would you open our hearts to the word? We would obey and walk in faith in the word of God. I pray for grace to let your word come through and to fall back. Lord, we want to see you. We want you to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'll start at uh, Acts chapter 12. I'm going to look at verse 18. I'll remind you where we are, how we got there. We saw Peter in jail. Remember this? Wasn't that a great story? Uh, The angel shows up and, and pats him on the side and wakes him up, has him put his belt back on and his sandals and his robe over him. And and then he says, come on, follow me. And he walks him out. Peter had been manacled. Remember this? Manacles, those things around the wrists. And then with a chain on each manacle to a guard. So he's got a guard on a chain on each wrist. He's got two guards outside the gate of his cell. And then he's got another another wall or gate of some kind with another set of guards. And then there's an iron gate that leads into the city. And the manacles fall off. and And the angel comes and Peter follows him out just walking past all of this remember the gate opens by itself yeah the the word is automate in greek i mean all by itself the gate opens up and peter goes out and the angel leads him to the corner to down down the block straight on out down the block to the first intersection and then he disappears at that point peter wakes up and says wow this isn't a vision tells you something about peter's visions I mean, they're very vivid. When he has them, he, he can't detect them from reality at the moment. He's, he is literally seeing what he's seeing. It's quite, quite an interesting observation. He says, well, wow, I'm out. We, you remember the story. He goes to the house. He's gone. Now, Luke takes us back to the jail, and we pick up at the jail cell without Peter, verse 18. Now, when day came, morning, There was no small disturbance among the soldiers. Don't you love that phrase? Yeah, no small (laughs) disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him, 
and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there, stayed there is what it says. He, he's, his nerves are frayed, he's tired. All this killing of people is a lot of work. And so he goes down to his, his, his beachside palace. There's, it, we, when we go to Israel, we go there. I mean, you'll, you'll, you, we stand and walk on the place where he was. And it juts out into the sea there. And it had ponds and, I mean, goodness gracious. So he's down there drinking lemonade and, and uh, yeah, no, it's grape juice. Uh, and calming his poor nerves. All right. Verse 20. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's up in Lebanon. And with one accord they came, came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain. I'll tell you what that is later. They were asking for peace. Because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod having put on his royal apparel took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory, God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Fun picture, I will describe more later. <laughs> but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. You better believe it did. I mean, everybody in Jerusalem and the whole of Judea is aware of what Herod Agrippa has done. He has put James, the, the, the lead apostle at the time, put him to the sword, probably cut off his head publicly. And, and then he arrested Peter. Peter is strangely gone. And then you hear that, what is this, weeks, months, I don't know, that Herod has gone down to his palace at the, at the, at the beach and suddenly in a, in a speech before an entire packed amphitheater, has collapsed and within five days died and worms were coming out. Uh, does that tell you don't mess with the God of these Christians? Do not mess with him. Do not mess with him. And of course, don't allow yourself to be worshipped. Every human being needs encouragement. Many of us are our own worst critic. So a sincere compliment or word of thanks can be like a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty. Of course, there are people who are proud. But in most cases, I think, much of that is bluff. Or if nothing else, the passing of time tends to humble even the best of us. Notice that? You used to be proud, now you're just crabby. I mean, time just does its number, right? You kind of go, man, is that me? Discouragement, self-hatred, and shame become the enemies we wrestle with. So when someone speaks positively to us, it can have a powerful impact. So powerful that if wielded by the wrong person, such words can be used to control us. They can lure us into a strange state of self-deception in which we actually begin to believe what we're being told. And if someone doesn't rescue us by confronting us with the truth, it can ruin our personality and take away our effectiveness in serving God. Luke's account of Herod's strange death allows us to watch a man fall prey to flattery. For years, this man had pretended to be a devout Jew. Yet when a crowd of people tell him he's a god, for a few seconds, he believes it. For a few seconds, he basks in their worship. And in that few seconds, God's patience runs out. 
An angel strikes him and exposes the lie. Admittedly, Herod Agrippa's death is bizarre. But the forces at play in that amphitheater aren't. They are all too familiar. We've all felt the temptation to believe too much about ourselves. To receive flattery. Because we're all in need of encouragement. How we speak to one another is of great concern to God. The Bible has much to say about this topic. So let's learn from Herod's example what to avoid. And then let's learn how God wants us to compliment and honor one another. Luke now turns his attention back to the prison and to Herod. He says, when it became day, there was not a little confusion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And Herod, searching for him but not finding him, after questioning the guards, ordered them to be led away to execution. And going down from Judea to Caesarea, he remained there. Never came back is what Luke is really telling us. He went down and this was his end. He would not come back. While in Caesarea, Herod Agrippa collapsed during a speech to delegates from Phoenicia and later died. For some reason, he had become bitterly angry toward the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they came to him united in purpose. They befriended Blastus, Herod's trusted servant who watched over him as he slept. A chamberlain is is the servant who guards you while you sleep. You can imagine how trusted that person must be. I mean, they hold your life in your hands. You, you, we remember, uh, what is it, Nehemiah being the cupbearer for the king. Great trusted thing. You've got to taste the thing and, ch- and make sure he doesn't get poisoned wine. All right, well, the chamberlain stands guard over you while you sleep at night. So they befriended him. Can you say bribed? Uh, blast us, yeah. And his trusted servant. And he helped them gain an audience so they could plead for peace. Their country depended on trade with Israel in order to maintain a sufficient supply of food. But apparently, Herod had suspended these imports by issuing a royal decree. Remember, please, we're in the middle of a famine. Remember that? That's why, you know, uh, Saul and and, and Barnabas and, and, and Titus are down there, all of the representatives from Antioch. They're bringing an offering for the, for the hungry poor in, in Judea. Because the famine is over this whole area. Their people are hungry. So it's, it, I, I'll fill you in. I think the reason Herod Agrippa is so angry at Phoenicia is, is there's a, it's, it's really a strange combination of things. He has built a synagogue up there before this. And some rough youths had come in and had... I don't know what they'd done to people, but they had put a statue, I think, of Caesar in the middle of the synagogue, something like that. So here is Herod Agrippa, who poses as a, as a, as a, as a Pharisaical Jew, a strong Orthodox Jew. He's outraged. And so he, he goes to the Roman governor of the whole area and demands that that be taken care of. And the, and the guy at the time did. He took care of it. I don't know what he did to those youths, but he took care of it. Well, a new guy comes in, and he lets that stuff continue. And he refuses to stop it. Herod's ticked. He's angry. He's offended spiritually. And so I think what he's done is, is in the middle of this famine, use it as an excuse and say, we just can't export any more food to you. Uh, of course, it's a famine. We don't have enough for ourselves. And so we're going to stop the grain exports to Phoenicia. They send delegates down and they bribe his chamberlain for an audience. They beg him to restore that. And then, then we pick up. Here we go back. On a day designated for some sort of festival, 
Herod, dressed in royal clothing, sitting on the platform, delivered a public speech, apparently haranguing the, the, the delegates. The word is demagogue that, that Luke uses. You recognize that word? A demagogue, somebody who talks loud and fast, loud and fast, and who, who rants and, 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 and sort of punishes the people and controls them that way. So he is, he is doing a demagogue speech to them. But the common people in the crowd responded by crying out, the voice of a God, not a man. And right after that, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. Later on, after being eaten by worms, he breathed out his last breath and died. And then Luke says, but the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ, continued to increase in influence, reputation, and to bring more and more people to salvation. Let me describe this from a historian, Josephus, Jewish historian, has actually described the event. I know you're going to want to hear all the details. All right, here's, here's by the way, Pretty bizarre, huh? Collapsing and then being eaten by worms? Here's what's really bizarre. That's exactly the way his grandfather, Herod the Great, died. Collapsed and was eaten by worms after an agonizing few days. That's exactly the way Antiochus Epiphanes, who is in the book of Daniel, the model for the Antichrist, the guy who went in and, and slaughtered a pig on the altar and set up a statue of himself, Antiochus, that's how he died. That's how a Ro the Roman emperor, who was the most persecuting Roman emperor against the Christian church of all, that's how he died. That's what gets really bizarre. All right. According to Josephus, Her Herod was at Caesarea, presiding over the games in honor of Caesar. So, if, when we go there, we, are, we go right to this place, and there's a great hippodrome right along this, the, the beach there with the stadium, the stands looking outward. There's still some of the frescoes and everything. I mean, you can see this. And then here's where his palace is right here. And about 150 yards away, there is a, a, an amphitheater which is still intact. It was covered by the sands. So the thing, they, yes, they have repaired it, but it is the same amphitheater, and much of it's just the original amphitheater. Uh, and it, today it is considered the primary venue for musical events in Israel. Yes, they have a huge auditorium in, in Jerusalem and all of that. But this is where the, the top artists will go, to the, to the amphitheater at Caesarea. And it's, it's still there, all the lights, the things, they, they use it to this day. Well, when we go there... We, it, it, it faces right out, of course, into the ocean. And when we go there, we usually sit up against it, one side to, to, because we get there in the morning. And we want the, the sun, we want to be in the shadow because it's hot. But the sun will come in and we just watch it kind of come in and then it begins to come on us and we're all backing up, you know, trying to kind of move, stay into the shadow a little bit. On this morning... They were having these games in the, in the Hippodrome over here, all of this stuff, celebrating Caesar's safety, I think it had something to do with. And he is going to give a public speech. The thing is packed to the ceiling. I'm just telling you what Josephus says. I'll read some of the details because they're cool. It's packed to the ceiling. And he wore an outfit that had woven into it silver foil. 
So the, the, when they made the cloth, they wove silver threads, I mean real silver, into the, the fabric. He takes his seat on the, the rostrum. I mean, we stand on this thing. We know where it is. And, and, he, and he's starting to do this haranguing thing against these poor Phoenician delegates in all the places packed. And the sun breaks over the top, and it shines on him. And when it does, he glows. He begins to radiate this brilliant light out of all of his clothes. And people start going, he's a god. He's a god. And then the people, and the, I think the delegates, they took up the chant, the voice of a god, not a man. Josephus says, Agrippa entered at daybreak, clothed in a robe, inwrought with silver, on which the rays of the morning sun alighting. He appeared as if all irradiated with glory. Voices here and there saluted him as a god, and on his making an oration to them, they shouted, We have taken thee for a man, but henceforth we recognize thee a god. The king rebuked them not, nor showed any displeasure at this impiety. How would you respond as, as a pious Jew? When they start saying, you're a god. Okay, I'll show you later. But after a while, looking up, he saw an owl perched on a rope over his head. And immediately taking this for an ill omen, he was filled with remorse and seized with a violent pain in his bowels, exclaiming to his friends, your god has already come to the end of his life. He whom you saluted immortal is going away to die. Such a, to such a height did the pain rise, that he had to be carried hastily into the palace, where after five days' torture, he expired in his 54th year. Struck down. Luke will actually say those worms are intestinal worms. People will speculate what he had was peritonitis. His, his appendix ruptured or something, and the worms spread through his body cavity, and I don't know what came of that, how it looked. I won't go any further because we do have after-service fellowship. <laughs> and uh, hoping you'll stay with us. Flattery is a form of manipulation by which the flatterer perceives a person's insecurity or pride and plays on that vulnerability. They tell the person what they think that person longs to hear. Did you follow that? People read you. They can tell if the flattery sticks, they can tell when you receive it, when you want to hear it. They can spot your vulnerability. And so they are telling you things they, they can tell you want to hear. And they use that. Uh, Proverbs 29.5 says, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. You see that? They're, they're setting a trap. And then the net is like they throw this net on the ground and put food in it, and the birds would alight in the thing, and their little feet would get caught. They trap it. So he it says, he's spreading a net for your feet. He's, they're trapping you. It's a way of trapping someone and bringing them under control. It's like a drug. A person becomes addicted. So when the flatterer withdraws it, you seek to regain their favor. Then they only give it to you as a reward for good behavior. But another proverb says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Did you follow this? They, 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 they flatter you until you become dependent on that. You value that. You're, they gotcha. And then they begin to withhold the flattery. And you're saying, well, what's wrong? I mean, did I do something, man? You begin to pursue them. 
Did I, did I offend you? What's, what's the problem here? You know, and then they'll give you a little bit, but they begin to give you flattery when you do what they want you to do. And they have you under control. It's, uh, you, it's not that far-fetched. Many of us got married on those terms. <laughs> okay, that was... That was but, but you know the process, don't you? How come you don't do that for me anymore? You kept bringing me flowers and you kept doing all those kinds of things and you don't do that anymore. Well, I got you. Why bother? We, we, we get used all the time. You know, I liken it to the way they train Flipper uh, at, at, the, at the Sea World. You know, you got the seal and you got it comes up on the thing and you want Flipper to honk the horn. You know, so Flipper gets up there and honk, 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 honks the horn. And what do you do? You reach into the bucket and you give him a piece of fish. And then you say, hey, Flipper, come on, do a, do a spin, Flipper. Flipper spins and you give him a piece of fish. And people begin to control us by giving us a piece of fish. They begin to tell us things we long to hear because we are starved for encouragement. There's a raw insecurity in us. And they spot it and they use it against us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. There are people who consider any sort of correction or observation, negative observation about themselves to be a betrayal. There are people who won't allow you to say anything negative of any form. It's, they are so insecure, they won't tolerate anything but positive affirmation. Yet thankfully, God provides friends who love us enough to tell us the truth. Even if it means risking losing our friendship, they wound us to protect us. Do you have friends like that? Friends that you can count on that if necessary, they will tell you the truth, even when it hurts to hear it. I, I'm going to be very, very indirect about this, but I'm, I've been around leaders and, and, and some, some high-level leaders, and I have, I've been close enough to the, to the process to watch this dynamic, to watch people will come up to certain leaders and will flatter them. Just tell them they are the best things in sliced bread and just ooh and goo over them and, and every time, all the time. Just flatter, flatter. And then I've watched that same person behind that, person's, that leader's back say really cruel things and clearly despise them. And then I'll watch them again in that leader's presence and just flatter and flatter and flatter. And oh, and then I've watched them behind their back. I was in a situation one time when we were having a difficult moment and, and I, got, I got called in privately after, a, after a, some difficult meeting. And I got called in and a particular leader just said to me, I, I need you to tell me honestly um, what, what, what just happened in there. And I said, that wasn't good at all. It really was bad. This was wrong, this was wrong, and this was wrong. He just looked at me and said, Thank you. And I went out the door. That was really painful. I love that person. I had to tell him that. Why did he call me? Well, you know, Shell will tell you. You got spinach right there. <laughs> you need to get that on. I don't know if that's good news or bad news, but he, he, was, he needed somebody who wouldn't flatter him right then. He needed somebody. He was dealing with an issue and he had to have an answer. Is what just happened in that situation. The delegates from Phoenicia probably hated Herod. The whole region was experiencing a terrible famine. And in the midst of it, Herod had stopped exporting grain to their cities. 
because he bitterly resented something they had done. But they had studied him and spotted a weakness in this vain king. He loved the way the Romans treated their emperors, and he had actually grown up with Caligula in Rome, and Claudius was a dear friend. His mother and Caligula's mother were dear friends. The family had fled from Israel because the the father was killing everybody, and and so they'd fled, and he grew up as a child. I mean, their, their mothers were very close. He grew up playing with Caligula. Caligula is his childhood friend. And then he did a great favor for Claudius and, 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 and became very valued by him. And they gave him all of Israel. They gave him everything because they loved him so much. So he had this deep relationship. He'd watched those Roman Caesars worshipped. And in, somehow, I think, that infected him. So they began shouting out the sorts of things Romans said to their divine Caesars. And he loved it. He had longed to be treated like a Caesar, and in spite of his claim to be an observant Pharisaical Jew, he let them call him a god. Their flattery wasn't sincere. They didn't think he was a god. They thought he was a vulnerable man. So they said what they they needed to say to win back his favor to get the grain imports flowing again to their cities. How should he have responded? Let's watch another Pharisee. When people tried to worship him. Look at Acts 14. Just turn a couple chapters to the, to the right. Here's another Pharisee. And he shows up. Uh, I'm, I'm just hardly wait to get to, to this story. I'm not going to give you all the fun details. This is an amazing story at Lystra. Lystra is way out in the boondocks. It is hundreds of miles out in nothing. In the middle of what is today Turkey. Out in the, just the middle lands of Turkey. And The Lord led Paul and Barnabas to Lystra. And when they get there, they encounter a man who was lame or from his mother's womb. He had never walked. Verse 9, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke. And when he had fixed his gaze on him and seen that he had faith to be made well, he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. And the crowd saw what Paul had done, and they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have become men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. So you can kind of tell what they look like. What did Zeus look like? Big hair, big beard, come on, big old man, you know. So that, we got a picture of, 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 of Barnabas, and then, then Paul, he's the chief speaker. Well, we knew that. And Look how they respond. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men in the same nature as you and and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And then it says down there in verse 18, uh, even saying these things with difficulty that restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to him. That's how a godly man responds to worship. That's how a godly man responds when people are putting you too high on a pedestal. He grabbed the top of his robe. This is what, this is what you do, biblically. You grab the top of your robe and you rip it. It means blasphemy. How dare you call me a god? I'm a man like you. He, he, he took and showed that his, ruined a robe. I mean, you, you ruined the thing. You got to take that and get it fixed. He 
ripped his robe in the presence of this said, stop it. That's how you respond when people flatter you. That's how you respond. No, I mean, no, no. We'll, we, we'll dial that down a little bit. But, but you get the point. Escaping flattery. Don't use it. We are called to what? Say it again. Yes, we are. Speak the truth in love. Boy, every one of those things is important. You got to say something. It's got to be true. And it's got to be done in love. Number two, don't receive it. When you taste the poison, spit it out. I wrote that. It ought to be in, you know, they could do that and engrave that on stuff they sell in roadsides. You know, when you taste the poison, spit it out. Say that. Yeah, when you recognize flattery, spit it out. Recognize what's happening. The Holy Spirit is faithful to alert us and then simply speak the truth. You don't have to rip your robe. Speak the truth yourself. Don't leave the lie hanging in the air. Firmly, kindly, turn everyone's attention to God, acknowledging him as the true source of whatever good thing is being attributed to you. Let's watch Jesus do this. When a person genuinely saw the truth of who he is, he actually received their worship. Do you recall how, how the man who was born blind, Jesus took the clay, he spit in the dust, made clay, and smeared it on the man's eyeballs. There's something to be said there. Literally, the creator is recreating with, with Adam. He, he created his, his, his eyes, and the man saw and he got who he was. He said, who is he, Lord, that I may, I may worship him? And he said, I'm me. And the man worshiped Jesus. He received that. That was, that was genuine worship of who Jesus is. But I want you to see also how Jesus responded to flattery. When it was flattery, he quickly turned the attention to the Father. A, here, here, here is a statement. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Is, is Jesus denying that he's good? Not at all. What he's dealing with is a man who thinks he's just a human being. He's a good teacher. And he's called him good. And so he's going right after it saying, no human's good. No human. We are... Humans are filled with this. Only God is the source of goodness. Why do you call me good? He's going right after what is flattery and what is a confusion. Here's another. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him saying, Teacher, we know you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Do you hear them building him up? They're setting him up. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? What did he do then? How did he handle this? They're, they've tried to set him up with flattery. To try to inflate him and say, you are so truthful and you are so courageous. We just know you won't be disturbed by the Roman guards standing over there. You won't be disturbed by all of the, the people in front of you. You'll just tell the truth, won't you, you great big tough guy? And Jesus perceived their malice. They were flattering him, setting him up. 
And he says, it's, who has a coin? I mean, he says, here I do. Which they weren't supposed to have, by the way, with the image of Caesar on it. He says, whose image is on your coin? Caesar's. Ugly, isn't he? <laughs> and, then, and then he just knocks it out of the park. He says, if Caesar wants these vile things with his image on it, give them to him. Give them back. You give you who have God's image on you. You give you to God. And they were just flabbergasted. What did he do? Took it right back and turned it to God. Turned right back where it belonged. Jesus carefully redirected the glory for his miracles and his words back to the Father, saying things like this. Read this with me, would you? Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. The next one. I can do nothing on my own initiative. You say, isn't he the Son of God? What is he saying? He is the Son of God. But do you understand that during his earthly ministry, he set the privileges of his divinity aside? You have a man baptized in the Holy Ghost doing what he did. And so when he tells everybody, he says, hey, when I say good things, it's because I've heard the Father say them. When I do miracles, it's because I've watched him do it. It's his Holy Spirit doing this. He, even, even in all of that, he kept turning the glory back to God. He refused to take the Father's glory. May I add that if he can only do things by the Father, if he only speaks good things when he hears the Father speak, how about us? How about us? Now we're going to turn from flattery to compliments. A godly compliment is an honest expression of admiration or gratitude. We observe something good in a person and then want to tell them about it in order to encourage them to do it again. It doesn't come from a desire to control a person, but to acknowledge that he or she has been a vehicle through whom God helped us. A godly compliment doesn't confuse the source with the vessel. It doesn't turn a person into a god. It keeps the glory properly directed to God, but affirms the human through whom his blessing has come. Do you understand the distinction? I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to hurt you. But I see God using you. I, I, I got to bring this out. You got to get a hold of this. How important good compliments are. We desperately need them. You need them. Everyone does. Flattery is a great danger. But so is the absence of sincere compliments. In fact, it may be a lack of compliments from the right people at the right time that leaves a person vulnerable to flattery. Think of it. Young men and young women growing up without a father. Not that you don't need your mothers as well, but I, I, can, I can just speak to this one personally. There's just a raw spot inside when you haven't had a father that said, well done, I'm proud of you. It leaves young men spending the rest of their life in some ways until they, if they don't get this right with God, it leaves them running around looking for people to compliment them, to affirm them, to tell them they're okay because they have this deep need inside. Young women who don't have a father that says, you're, I just, you're just beautiful and smart, I just love you. If they don't have that, they'll look for men who will tell them that. 
They desperately need that. I'm just, do you see this? When you and I don't compliment each other properly, a flatterer will step into that void. We need to be speaking. When you see someone used of God, when you see something beautiful in somebody's life, it is not flattery. You're not going to turn their head into, turn them into some kind of sick pride to tell them, man, that was great. God is so at work in you. Do you realize how good that was? You know what you do? You give them hope to do it again. You give them enough breath and strength to go, okay, I'll do that again then. We need to be encouraging one another with our words. Most people tend to be self-critical and unaware of how God actually uses them. Let me say that again. I'm amazed at how unaware people are of how God uses us. People often have no clue. And you say, don't you see it? They don't see it because it's kind of natural for them. They're used to it. So when someone compliments them, telling them how they saw God in them, using them powerfully, it helps that person recognize God's calling on their life. And it helps counteract the negative thoughts the enemy brings to discourage them and get them to stop. Haven't you noticed? Every time you step out and do something for God, don't you have a backlash? Don't you have like, what did I do? I was a fool. What an idiot. Man, I can't believe how badly I did that. Right? I see, I see it all the time. People will, if they have the courage to stand up and bring a word in a service, they'll be, Pastor, that was terrible, wasn't it? No, it wasn't terrible. It was beautiful. Really? Yeah. And I have to have the courage to tell them if it wasn't. But if I tell them it is, it is. They have to hear that. Don't you? Don't you? We need to be speaking affirmation to one another. Our lips have the power of life and death in them. There are some guidelines. Here are some guidelines for giving and receiving compliments. Number one, actively watch for God at work in others. Finally, brethren, says Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Not simply vaguely philosophically. When you see things that are lovely and honorable and of good repute in other people, speak it. See it. Look for it. Come out of the bubble. Look and watch for that in people. When you see something good in someone, especially if you see God's anointing at work, tell them. Number two, actively listen when people tell you how God used you to minister to them. Actively listen. God divinely assists us in areas where he's called us to serve him. So we need to watch for those areas when he comes to help us. Listen when people come up on their own initiative. And thank you sincerely saying how much you've helped them. Whether you like that area or not. Watch it. When people come up and say, I just got to tell you, man, when you did that, when you spoke that, when you showed it, whatever it was, you were so helpful. God really used you. How many have heard those words? Sometimes it's in areas you didn't want it to be. People keep telling me I'm so helpful in that area, but I don't want to do that. I'm thinking right now of a young man. He, 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 he's not, he was not young anymore, I guess, but he was when I knew him. Um, when we built the church in Tempe, Arizona, this, this young couple came with us. And he had been a journeyman plumber. 
but he'd also gone to Bible college and, and uh, had a good ministry, but he was really good with his hands. I mean, really good with his hands. That guy could, even if he'd never done it before, he could read about it a little bit, study it a minute, and then when he did it, it looked like you'd had a professional come in and do it. But he had a, an older couple in his life, and, and they kept counseling him. They kept saying this to him, John, you need to put your tools down. You need to put your tools down. If you don't put those tools down, God's never going to use you. You got to put those tools down. Who do, who do you think made him capable to do that stuff? You know, when we did the projects, what they gave me to do, I hammered long rows of nails. I swept. And I went to Home Depot and got a whole bunch of this or that and the other thing. I mean, I worked hard, but I did the dumb stuff. You know, have Shell do it. Demolish the wall, Steve. I can do that. When you needed something special done, John, come on over here. Would you do this? He was gifted. And, I, and I would, people would say that. And I said, John, of course you're called to preach. Of course you're called this, this, this kind of thing. It is. And he's doing it now. But I said, don't you ever give up that. God has anointed you. Don't you see the skill? He's blessed you. Don't despise the gifts he's given you. Don't despise the way he's made you. He's designed you to do what he wants you to do. Look at this statement by David. Uh, why don't you read it with me? I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Say it again. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David is not talking about his outward appearance. He is talking about the fact that God from his mother's womb knew that he was going to become the king of Israel. And that God had designed him even in his mother's womb and given him the gifts and capabilities to do what he would have to do when he stepped into what God had called him to do. Do you understand? That truth is as real in your life as it is in David's life. You have been designed fearfully and wonderfully made to do what he has called and predestined for you to do. When I use the word predestined, you have a choice in it, but you don't have a choice of what he predestines you to do, just whether you'll do it or not. He has made you. He has formed you. He has designed you. And when you and I affirm in one another what we see, when we speak to each other and we see God at work and we say, man, I got to tell you, that was beautiful. I got to tell you, Lord so ministered to me when you did that. You are telling people God's hands on you there. Watch that area. God's hands on you there. Godly compliments are wonderful things. We need to give them freely and listen to them carefully. When someone compliments us, the proper way to respond is to thank them. And then in one way or another, acknowledge that God is the true source of their blessing. You're just grateful he used you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.